Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I am your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today is part two of our discussion with Kate Graham for Catalyst Kennels about breeding detection dogs. If you have not listened to part one yet, please go back and find it. It was absolutely worth your time. And uh, we are not going to reintroduce Kate or do another science highlight. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Kate from Catalyst Kennels. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Kate. Everyone is now hearing us a week later. It has been three minutes for us. <laughs> um, time, time is a construct. Um, and we were, so at the end of the last episode, we were, you were talking about kind of like arousal and drive and, you know, how needing to have a common language for this is so important. And I think this is important just in the working dog and sport dog world in general and shelter dog world, gosh, like everywhere, mm-hmm. but even more so when we're talking about breeding. And, um, I had this anecdote pop into my head when you were, um, you were talking about this like arousal question. Um, so there was this, um, there's this dog that I wanted that I absolutely fell in love with online he was at the um oh gosh uh the carroll college anthrozoology training program so um, students in this program they they live with and train and foster um dogs and then the dogs ultimately get adopted out at the end of the program there was this gorgeous border collie that was in the program um i drove three hours to go meet him and do some kind of ball drive assessments you know everything on his online bio sounded great um, and I took him out and I threw the ball for him a couple times. He like half-heartedly chased after it. And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't think he's the right fit for us. We're really looking for a high drive. And his handler, um, who, you know, was a student, she was probably, you know, 19, 21, 22, somewhere in there. She was like, well, we've done a lot of obedience around the ball, so he's not crazy for it anymore. So, you know, I think he's still got the drive. And I was like, no, no, right. it, like... He might have been mugging you for it before, but even if you've taught your dog to downstay and wait when you throw the ball, like what we're still looking for is a dog that's a coiled spring in that situation. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And it, it was just this interesting realization of like, oh, yeah, we're we're looking at the same thing. And you're thinking that because you've taught some some uh, like impulse control games or whatever that has suppressed drive. And when I say drive, that's not something that should go away with an impulse control game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That dog shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to obedience the love of their ball out. They shouldn't be calm around the ball just because you've done obedience now. Yeah. yeah. Both of my dogs won't mug you for the ball. You're not going to end up bloody because that is important to me. Right. But they both, I mean, you pull out a ball and my barley in particular, like he'll be perfectly still, but his pupils are the size of dinner plates Mm -hmm. and you move that ball and he is moving with you. Right. (laughs) Um, And you know, and part of that's also border collies, you know, they tend to they, they follow movement, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Um, but, you know, but I've seen labs do the same thing. Absolutely. And I do a lot, like my adult dog, so we can't play, like, group chuck it, right? Because that just turns into <laughs> no. a bloodbath crap. Like, that, that's going to go really south really quick. Um, but we have a nice, beautiful, huge level field that we can play in. So it's impulse control chuck it. So it's everyone sits and waits, and it's only the adults that actually have obedience in them. The, the young guys yeah. don't get to play these games, but the ones that know what they're doing. Um, everyone lines up, they sit, wait, um, throw the ball, let it fall, let it settle, and then one can get released to go get the ball. Well, that's still not them just, yes, they are sitting there, they are staying because they have obedience. Um, 
but good God, if you're in their way when they go, like you're trying to get taken out at the knees mm-hmm. and you're going down. Like it's, it doesn't mean that they're then half-heartedly going out for the ball. They are coiled enough springs where if someone probably pokes them on the side just hard enough, they're just going to implode. Um, so just because they have some obedience doesn't mean I should still see every expression of that drive when the dog is, is moving towards its reward item or has been released to do so. Um, and absolutely. I think so. My dogs, um, my search dogs typically are in a, a static, either a down and quiet or a middle and quiet position before they search. Um, because I want a dog searching with a clear head. So I don't let them just walk the whole way up barking, screaming to the, wherever we're going to start our search area. It's a controlled manner to walk up there. And then you're going to either be in a down and quiet or a middle and quiet to kind of collect yourself before I let you release you to go search. Um, that doesn't mean they're searching with any less drive and intensity because right. those dogs are, are still super efficient and very intense when they go out. But I don't need that huge expression of arousal um, beforehand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, again, I think this is the sort of thing that, you know, hopefully commu- like communications and education wise, like, we're just, we, we just, we just need to continue improving on it. Um, right. Cause again, this is the sort of thing I see all the time in, in our shelter dogs where people will email me and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, I've got this dog that I think is going to be a great working dog. Are you interested in assessing him? And you know, sometimes within a couple, a couple email questions back and forth, it, it clearly is, you know, high energy. Yes. Mm-hmm. High arousal for sure. But that drive isn't there. And, right. um, you know, and, and like, Nothing against people who, who aren't no. in our world. It's it, you know these these words all seem like they should mean the same thing, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Until you speak the language fluently. Absolutely, absolutely. No, when I have people who are like, "Oh, my super high drive dog," and you know, I've had people come over who are like, "Oh, I have really drivey dogs," and I'm like, "All right, you know, my dogs will will mug you a little bit in the yard with items, so like we can't have balls and things out freely because." It would just never end. Um, but they'll, if someone comes over, they will absolutely find a stick or they will find a thing. And so it's, oh yeah, I'm used to high drive dogs. My dog plays fetch for rubber too. I'm like, well, you're not going to stop now. Like they won't stop. They're like, oh, they'll stop when they get hot. I'm like, no, they'll, they'll heat no, stroke they and die. They won't. They will put themselves in a very bad situation. Or, oh no, they won't. They won't run over that dangerous thing to go get it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they will. Like they will hurt themselves to get there. Um, there's a difference between high drive and a dog who just loves to fetch or loves to play or, um, it's not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I know I've watched, I've watched this happen now dozens and dozens of time with my times with my dog Barley when, you know, people at first he'll bring you endless toys, endless things. Mm -hmm. And I always, Anytime he's coming into someone else's house or they're coming into our house, like the first words out of my mouth are, we have a very strict no fetch in the house rule. Do not toss it to him. Do not kick it to him. Do not tip it off of your lap. Like if he gives you something, hand it to him slowly and tell him to take it in like a low firm voice. And if he brings it back to you, I'm going to take it away and put it on the fridge. Right. And that is what we have had to do. And every time I still, you know, people still, and like, I'm not mad about it. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's an Mm -hmm. instinctive thing that people do or habitual reflexive, whatever. It is. And inevitably at some point, you know, again, watching the Super Bowl yesterday, at some point there was a couple people who had not met Barley yet who looked up and they were like, I thought you were being a control freak. 
about your dog. I thought you didn't want your dog to have fun. I see what you mean. He will not stop. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And then they start Don't to get it. And then, they're like, then they're like, how do you make it stop? And you're like, the item just has to go away. It all has to yeah. go away. But now you're also marked as a sucker for life because yeah, yeah it's the dog just has to go away now. He needs to go have his time to, to do that because exactly. yeah. it's, they don't stop and people don't understand. I mean, you could take the, the toy away and they will come back with a piece of lint and be like, throw this, <laughs> this item, this yeah. will work. Well, and the funny thing is then on the flip side, when I, when I first got hired at Working Dogs for Conservation, I was like all nervous and excited the first couple days when I went to go meet these other dogs. Cause I was like, all right, now I'm going to go meet the real working dogs. Yeah, and I yeah. assumed that they were going to be at like a whole other level from Barley. And, <laughs> you know, a couple of months in, I had this realization where I was like, oh no, like I already had a dog who was just as intense as these, like, you know, they had right. mouths that came out of like the Green Beret program. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my oh, border collie sure. that I just got at a random shelter was on that same level. And so it was almost like, I think I'd heard so many people having the conversation you and I are having right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, I assumed that that meant that there was no way that my dog could possibly compare. And he did. Right. Um, so, right. you know, if you're listening at home, there's a chance that your dog is on this level. It is. Absolutely. But most people think that who think that they have seen a working dog or seen a really, really high drive dog when they meet one of these dogs can, you know, it's different. Right, right. It's not a, and, and it's not the, I'm fetching because I love to fetch or I'm doing this because I love to do it. It's that desperation of I'm doing it because I need to do it. And yeah. that becomes a whole different level for some people where they're like, there's, you know, it, it's essentially, and I have a friend who talk, we talk about this regularly. We're not, at least for our ideal detection dogs, um, I don't know if I'm breeding the most sound dog in the head always, and that probably is going to come out sounding weird, but I'm breeding a dog who essentially is obsessed to a unhealthy level with a reward item, um, who will hunt in unlikely and normally unproductive areas to be able to obtain that reward item, um, and who will do things that a normal rational dog should not do to obtain that reward item. So I think there is an element of we're breeding dogs that are not they're not definitely not ideal pets, but they're not the most normal dog in the world. Yeah, it's not, it's not rational or like evolutionarily reasonable to have a dog who will forsake a fistful of chicken for a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we're Absolutely. going for. And I think, I think, you know, and we talk about this some in the border collie world, um, and, you know, I feel like I see it a lot in some other breeds as well. There, <laughs> Sometimes we're playing with fire with that. Right. And I think, like, there are good ethical conversations to be had about, or, you know, interesting ethic conversations to be had. You know, I do think, like, there there are good conversations that we we should be having, and maybe should be having more of, even, as far as, you know, at what point... Are we overbreeding for drive? Um, and yes. again, I think, I think sometimes our border collies, again, I, I just, I talk about them because they're the breed that I'm in. They make it nice and obvious because they are the ones that get, they get so neurotic. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so sensitive. And again, not that our German shepherds and our mouths and our labs don't do the same thing. Um, but I agree. The border collies are a great kind of canvas to see that on. Um, but I think yeah. too, they may be a breed that we've been breeding for that extreme drive, maybe for a little bit longer or maybe in a more yes. concentrated segment because of the work that they do and how long they've been doing the work that they've been doing. Um, when we look at, some of our, like our labs or some of the other floppy ear dogs, which is just what I'm more familiar with for detection work, they've been working in that realm for a relatively short period of time. Um, so we don't right. have hundreds uh-huh. of years behind them of saying we've bred them for detection work. Um, and it's something that we will continue to create, I think, a better dog moving into the future as the demand for them increases. But we also need to make sure we're looking at the fundamental characteristics of why we chose them in the first place. Um so our, our great, you know, hunting labs um, genetically are predisposed to use their nose and, and be willing to go and hunt well. Um, but we need to be careful with that because if we breed that hunt to an extreme, then we can have a dog who will forsake reward items or reward system uh-huh. just because they want to keep hunting. And that priority. The only dogs their- I've ever seen do that have been labs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, of course, it doesn't mean that's the only breed that'll ever do it, but the only dogs I have personally worked that have done that. Yes. Yes. And you do see it on occasion. And I think we're going to start seeing it a little bit more um, because we go from breeds that have traditionally been used for detection work where the hunt is something those dogs have been lacking a little bit more, right? Like a border collie isn't genetically wired to hunt. A Malinois or a shepherd is not super genetically wired to use their nose. That's not a huge aspect of what that breeding program has been put on. Whereas labs and some of our spaniels, they have been bred for centuries to use their nose and to have a good nose and also just not to use it, have that nose, but to use it for hunting and either to quarter or to range and, and be able to use that nose effectively and quickly go to their nose as a method of solving problems. Um, so that's something the labs and a lot of our floppies have what sometimes they don't have is that value in a reward item. Um, so that's maybe where we need to be focusing our breeding programs a little bit more. Um, typically when I have people raising labs for me, I will say, you know, the hunt, I'm not worried about the hunt. The hunt will usually be there like that. We can focus on later on what I am worried about is does that dog have proper toy play and engagement? Does that dog have proper motivation for a reward item? And will they forsake the hunt and terminate the hunt when they get to their reward item? Because there are plenty who will get to the end of their hunt, get their reward item and either keep hunting with that reward item in their mouth or um, just say, screw it to the reward item. And genetically it feels better to them to just keep hunting. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's such a, it's so nuanced and it's so interesting. And, you know, even circling back, I think part of it with our border collies, um, and I'll just pick on border collies cause that's the breed yeah. that I can, I can pick on the most, um, is it's not, you know, it's not just that they've been bred for hundreds of years for jobs and for sports. And like, you know, herding is such an easy thing to map over onto our sports. But also, I think one of the reasons it leaks out so easily in our border collies is because when you think about what makes a good herding dog mm-hmm. and what makes a good agility dog, and therefore these things that were really, these really hypertrophied behaviors we've got in the breed, they're also things that make it really hard for border collies to succeed in a lot of typical homes. Right. 
And so I think it it's this thing that in the breed, like, it, it, it bites us in the butt so frequently and so obviously. Um, because, yeah, like, if you've got a dog who's incredibly vigilant to vis- visual changes in the environment, they're very good at noticing changes in behavior of many, many species around them, and they have a strong need to feel control and order. Mm-hmm. Those are things that don't necessarily mesh well with being in a household with kids or with other right. pets or these other things that I think... Yeah, like as you're getting these really good working or sporting border collies, it's it becomes very obvious when you're starting to get some of these other behaviors as well that are just, you know, it's part of the package and understanding how to work with that and how to deal with that. And hopefully, you know, maybe how to breed the dogs that have the ability to work the way that we want, but aren't ridiculous control freaks who get incredibly stressed out by the fact that you know, there are too many people in the kitchen and not enough people in the dining room. Um, or that's no, I think that's a huge, yeah. And that's something where I will say, I'm always grateful to play in labs because typically when we have a lab, who's not going to make it for detection work due to, um, you know, whatever, maybe not enough drive for the toy, maybe some environmentals, um, something like that. At the end of the day, there's still, a lab and I can still, I mean, I go out and group hike with like 18 dogs on our property and no one causes any issues and we can have people over and no one's in any kind of bad, you know, their labs. Um, yes, I like a more people neutral dog lab than most people do. I like a more, um, little bit more serious of a dog than most people are considering labs to be, but there's still, fundamentally a a lab and it's still kind of that framework where, okay, if I have one that flunks, um, I can still place it out pretty easily and safely and feel confident that that dog's going to be able to have a good life. But I agree with, with our border collies and even our Malinois and some of our shepherds. Um, the things that we have bred so excessively into those dogs can become really detrimental to trying to then either replace or rehome those dogs when they don't work for detection work um, because we've bred them to, to not, you know, to, to have these certain characteristics that may work well for us detection wise, but make them really not suitable dogs for just living as a dog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And especially, yeah, when we start talking about our shepherds and we're starting to think about the amount of voice that is bred into those dogs and the amount of teeth and yes. bite and grip yes. and, you know, those things are potentially even more problematic for a lot of pet people. Like border collies, I think generally what you're going to see is anxiety in the dog, which is a welfare mm-hmm. issue. That's, that's a thing we don't want. Absolutely. And some reactivity, that sort of stuff. But, you know, again, when I see the, the shepherds um, in particular, <laughs> yeah, the amount of barking and biting is is really, really problematic for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's funny that you say that you're looking for these, the, your labs to be a little bit more people neutral and a little bit more um, uh, serious than kind of what people think of as typical labs. And I think when I'm thinking about what I want long term in my border collies, it's a li- it's a little bit more labby of a border collie where I'm right. looking for more so than your typical border collie. I want a little bit more independence. I want a little bit more sociability and like neutrality with people versus like some border collies are so so stuck in their routines and so stuck mm-hmm. in their, their order that um, that's, that would be problematic for me. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's funny. Um, I think a lot about like, and who knows um, 
if I'll ever do this, but, you know, lab border collie crosses or like cocker border collie crosses yeah. and those sorts of other like huntier and even more like generally affable dogs. Like most people wouldn't call border collies an affable breed. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, right. But again, like then, then I've got to start dealing with all these like F1 crosses and exactly, exactly. You know that like, first that like, first cross is in probably a couple not decades, be. Um, <laughs> if ever. Like I'm not. We're gonna we're Down gonna talk about first, right? <laughs> right. I get crazy. And it's, it's amazing how just adding in a little bit of those those crosses can can sometimes create such an impact on a breed. I mean, we look at just like phenotypically looking at outward appearance of Dalmatians that have had the pointer cross in years ago, Mm -hmm. um, for the Lua thing. And those dogs, I mean, generation, this has been, I, I'm not a Dal person, so I can't say, but it's been very many generations since this original cross. And you can still pick out in a lineup of dogs, which ones are the pointer crosses because their spots aren't quite the same and, and things like that. Um, and so it does make you wonder a little bit, could those traits from just a little cross generations down, maybe, you know, for us, it's not the spots that are different, but maybe that is a little bit more affable of a border collie, or maybe that is mm-hmm. for us, for me, a little bit more, you know, a little bit sharper of a lab um, in a good way. So sometimes yeah. I think those crosses may be the direction we have to go. Um, but looking at doing them responsibly and in a long-term sense versus looking at it as I'm going to do a lab mal cross, which I hear about often enough. Um, and if they're floppy eared, hopefully we'll be able to sell them for detection work as it seems to be the general consensus there. Um, but it doesn't always give us what we want. It might give us little mm-hmm. pieces of a lab that we like and little pieces of a Malinois that we like. But typically, they're going to be pretty hardcore to one end or the other. They're not going to fall right, right in that beautiful little middle piece. Yeah, I mean, just like what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, having, if you breed a, a 4 out of 10 and a 6 out of 10 on a trait, you might get a lot that are kind of in that 4 to 6 range, which are mm-hmm. a couple at the 5 that you're aiming for. But breeding a 2 and an 8 together, you're not necessarily getting there. And... um no, you're probably yeah, ending up yeah, with more been, twos and eights than you are. Yeah. And, and this, you know, this is something I feel like I hear a lot in um, in kind of hybrid or, you know, designer dog world. And again, like, I've got nothing against sport crosses, working crosses. And you right, know what? Right. If you really want to doodle, go for it. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much so, like, get the dog that's the right dog for you. And if the doodle's the right thing, sure. Um, but I think a lot of times in the marketing of these crosses, we get this really interesting discussion of, like, like people are like, oh, well, it'll have the, the hypoallergenic coat of this and the great personality of that, and it'll love water like this. And it's like, A, you can't predict that. And no. B, it's totally ridiculous to assume that you can take like i could take a border collie and a cocker and i could end up with a nervy sight oriented Mm -hmm. anxious dog that's going to blow me off and like quarter and wiggle everywhere yes yes yeah it's just as likely you get all the worst qualities when like Mm -hmm. yes of course what i'm looking for is like the the happy scent oriented intelligent intuitive right cross between the two right exactly um, but it is so hard because we we think that you know 
two plus, you know, one plus eight is just going to equal nine. And we're going to end up with all our nice things in the middle and everything is going to, but a lot of times I think we do end up with the extremes on both sides and we can be putting traits. So if we have dogs that are so totally different and I have a dog who's maybe a little bit more nervy, a little bit lower drive, and I'm breeding it to this very powerful high drive dog, um, sometimes we end up with these weird nervy little dogs that then have all these feelings that they don't understand because it's just not (laughs) lined up with what their genetics say should be happening. And sometimes we end up with some really horrible stuff from that. So um, I think we do need to look at breeding proper candidates to proper candidates. And, um, you know, I'm always a fan of, we find the dog that will fit our breeding program. We don't make our breeding program fit the dog. So I could have a dog that I love and personally could be very attached to. Um, but if it does not fit my breeding objectives and goals, then I need to be the bigger person and acknowledge that and not use that dog in my program. Um, just because I love the dog doesn't mean I can breed its faults out and hopefully make a better thing in the future. Yeah. So it's something minor possibly. Um, but for that reason, I'm really big on, on proving my bitches. Um, so the broods in my program, I want to work, um, at least for, for all the detection side. So, um, if I'm going to breed a brood with the intention of having a mostly say TSA litter or, um, detection based litter, then, I want to make sure that dog actually works herself and not that she was evaluated at a year. And yeah, she looks like a great prospect and she looks like she'd be a great working dog. Um, if she was evaluated like that, great. But if she's able to just go live in someone's kennel or live with a pet person that I farm her out to and she's fine, that's telling me she's probably not actually the working candidate that I thought she was. Um, yeah. Because if she really was that working candidate, she wouldn't be living super well with, you know, my neighbor down the street that's just taking her on little walks and playing fetch in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want my working candidates to work. And and I've been lucky that I have a really great SAR community around me um, and working dog community around me that has been really generous and letting me put some dogs with some handlers with the understanding that I can get them back for breeding, um, which has allowed me to see those dogs progress all the way through training, certification, deployment. How do those dogs hold up to all those factors? Are they working in a status that I would like to see them work? And the true hallmark, would I like more dogs that are working like that? If I can say that for my broods, um, it's much easier for me to have stud dogs out in working situations because they don't need any time off when we're talking about breedings for them. Um, so then I compare it with a stud dog that I also like the work on and typically create a pretty consistent product. Um, but when I have a brood who, yes, she might look like she's a cool working candidate if we just take her out for a day or two and evaluate her, but there's so much that stress and pressure does to a dog. Um, I think there's so much that comes up when the dog's on, you know, day three of an eval with a new handler who is also not confident in that ability. Does that dog rise to the occasion or do they kind of shrink down and fall apart? Um, when we're on a stressful deployment where adrenaline's up and there's all kinds of emotion, is that dog working at the level we'd like them to, or is that dog going, Oh my God, everything around here is weird. And I'm really not comfortable with it. Um, I want to see the dogs really go out and do the job that we're trying to produce offspring to do. If the dam can't do the job, then why am I thinking the puppies can? Um, and I think as breeders, we do need to do a better job, especially with our broods and our, our, our 
bitch lines of making sure that those females can work and work in a way that we like. Um, I think we need to stop saying it's good enough that they look like a good working prospect and instead put the time into making them be a good working, you know, seeing, testing effectively. Can they actually do the job? Um, for me, I have HR dogs. It works out great. A lot of my broods are human remains dogs um, because it's a career where most of them are, if I need to take them back for three months for them to have a litter, it, it's an HR dog at the end of the day. If they're dead out there, the dog is a phenomenal asset to find them, but we're not talking life and limb. They are already dead. Yeah, if we're sending the HR, yeah. like we're already, already past that point. So if the dog's out for three months, and also that means we can call the dog that's two hours away to come in because it's not an emergency at that point. So for yeah, me, the it's, HR it's dogs not are a great model kid. for that. Exactly. That, exactly. It's yeah. your life. I'm like, oh no, if, <laughs> if yeah, we had the yeah, tracking like, dog that could have found the kid, then yeah, no, it's, it's, if we're sending HR dogs out, you know, we're, we're pretty much knowing what's going on at that point. So, um, yeah. so it works well for a model for me and I can still test those dogs and see how they work out in, in, It's been really helpful that way. Um, But there have been dogs that we've not used for our breeding program because of that, because they look really great on paper. They look really great when they're about a year old. Their health tests are great. But when we actually put them out with a handler and they're doing the job, we're seeing, okay, this dog maybe isn't as resilient as I thought it was, or it doesn't hold up for more than a day. It can work for six hours, but if we take it out the next day again, the work is super flat and it really can't come back from that. Um, So those are the things that I want to evaluate in my broods. Um, I always think it's traditionally much easier to evaluate in a stud dog because again, I can have a stud dog out working a full career, look at it at three, be like, oh, I really like everything it's done so far. It's looking nice either collect it and freeze it or do a breeding that dog's working career never needs to be interrupted with broods. I think we get far more into the idea of like, you're going to be a brood bitch. So you're not really going to do anything except make puppies and kind of hang out. Um, and again, if you're a dog that can do that, is that my best working prospect? Cause I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and uh, yeah, it, I, I really value what you're saying, and like totally agree. Like, I if I was looking for a detection dog prospect, um, and I was looking at a litter, you know, specifically because they had SAR dogs or you know whatever it is in their lines. I would want the, I would want the bitch to work just as much as I want the stud dog to work. Like, I, right. You know? Right. And yeah. Like and again, I, as we were saying, like, I think that it makes sense to think carefully about the jobs for the females and making sure that that is a, appropriate. Know, yeah. Appropriate. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the right word. Um, but yeah, no, we need to, but, but again, it's, it's hard. And I think far too many times we see, a really young, talented female dog. And so we just earmark her for breeding, put her to the side, don't really do much with her besides a lot of breeders will put her in a great home and she gets to have a great life. But again, my working dogs, I can't imagine if I had any other breeds that I have, you know, I have three breeds that live with me and I'm lucky to have a number of others that live with other handlers and in other homes. Um, 
I can't go two days without mine working. I can't imagine putting this great prospect brood into a home where she's just someone's hiking buddy or pet. And if she's living there comfortably, then is she really that great working dog that I was thinking she was? Because she's not getting the work and she's totally fine and happy. So maybe this isn't the the prospect I needed to make my breeding program, you know, enhance and, and put that dog out that's going to be working a full career and working those full days and those bigger search areas and, and be able to hold up to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm Taylor, and I'm the handler for Kepler, a mini Aussie in training for muscle detection work. Before canine conservationists, I didn't even know about all the possibilities with dogs in conservation. Now I've jumped feet first into the training. I wouldn't have been able to without the support I gained from being a part of the podcast Patreon. My favorite support comes from the group calls. I've been able to get alert training help and felt completely welcome even though I'm a complete novice to this kind of training. The group calls also help guide my questions for my one-on-ones with Kayla. The information is invaluable and the community is kind. I hope to see you there. So let's pivot a little bit to talk about kind of, yeah, caring for for the pregnant females and, you know, puppy raising and those sorts of things. What are some of the things that you're thinking about, you know, once once the breeding has already happened? I feel like so far we've been talking kind of about selecting dogs that you may right. want to breed. But once once we've got a pregnancy or puppies on our hands. Yeah. So I'm really big on exercise for pregnant broods, appropriate exercise. Um, so not super high impact activities, but keeping that brood fit. Um, and I think there's some research that'll be published fairly soon. And, and there's some research that's been published previously that's discussed the, um, uh, how much more effective broods are at naturally whelping litters when they are fit as opposed to at a higher body condition score. Um, so that is important. And I will say, you know, whelping tends to be a bit of a marathon. There are broods who might be whelping puppies for eight to 12 hours. I want a bitch that has the physical fitness to be able to sustain that comfortably um, without looking exhausted after hour four. So I do continue to exercise my breeds. I'm really big on that. They do a lot of a lot of hiking, a lot of swimming, all the, you know, lots of fit pause stuff just to kind of keep them in good shape throughout their pregnancy. Um, and then there's so much, there's people who could speak far better than I can about, uh, diets through gestation and, um, Mm -hmm. all of that, but essentially making sure they're on a balanced, appropriate ration throughout their pregnancy, um, that they're getting what they need, that they're not becoming overly fat, that they're just gaining appropriate weight gain for puppies. Um, the majority of it, most broods aren't going to even look pregnant through that first, you know, 30 days that they're, Mm -hmm. they're expecting. It's really that last half where things start to increase. Um, so extra Exercise is a huge thing there. And that does continue when puppies are born too. So um, my broods, as soon as puppies are out, can resume kind of their normal exercise. Again, avoiding high impact activities um, and also making sure we're very careful on ligaments. So there's going to be a lot more laxity during gestation and right after post-whelping. So you know, we do need to be more aware that that everything is lax. It's meant to be more lax to allow puppies to come out, to allow everything to expand to where it needs to go. But because we have that laxity in ligaments, um, it, we need to be just careful of the dogs being careful of themselves so we don't have any tears or, or strains yeah. that we shouldn't. Um, so that's going to go through general brood care. Um, 
and then just mental stimulation too. So most of mine do start to get the first week or so with puppies They're They're content to just take care of puppies because that is an exhausting job and a great mom is really on it all the time. So they're, they're keeping themselves nicely content there, but pretty quickly they want to get back to work again. And I do allow them to start doing, you know, odor puzzle things, even discrimination lineup <laughs> things, things that can at least work their brain um, and let them be nice and content while they're still taking care of that litter at the early stage. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And well, and even, you know, thinking about like the number of like advertisements I've seen for human maternity fitness classes, whether they're swimming or yoga, yeah. or whatever, like, of course we would want to do the same thing for our dogs. And yeah, of course I'm not going to have my, I'm not going to take a pregnant bitch and be like, today's the day. I think we're going to try wall climb. Right. <laughs> Sounds like a great activity for today. Yeah. yeah no, but, but like, yeah, yeah. I still want them to be active and healthy and, you know, and if nothing else, again, when we're talking about working dogs, we need to make sure that like we're keeping up with their energetic needs mm-hmm. and helping them stay, you know, for lack of a better word, f- sane throughout right. pregnancy and puppy raising. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just because they're pregnant, yes, we need to maintain biosecurity and make sure we're not exposing them to disease risks and things like that. Yeah. But they don't need to be in a bubble. You know, they do mine. I love free hiking with mine because at least then they can kind of push themselves as much as they want to. If you want to go run crazy zoomies through the woods, you can. If you just want to trot along next to me, you can. Um, but they can at least get some some exercise in that way. And, um, you know, even some of our treadmill stuff and some of our uh, some of the fit to work exercises and Avadog actually has a, like a, a maternal during gestation, uh, physical fitness type of exercises that they have set up. Um, and I do think they help. I, I whelp a lot of litters in what I do. So I myself don't have that many, um, litters per year. I do two to three, but I whelp for a lot of other breeders in the community. And I also whelp for a couple service dog schools, um, that have, many litters a year. So I whelp a lot of litters a year. And I will say I'd much rather whelp a fit brood. Um, we can get through things much quicker. The brood is mm-hmm. much more content through the process. Recovery after is so much better than a brood who is exhausted by puppy three. And I have to have someone hold up so that we can get her standing to, to pull puppies out and have her work with contractions that way. Um, whelping a brood that is out of shape is exhausting for everybody and we have a much lower you know rate of neonatal success um we do end up losing more puppies just because that brood can't effectively push them out so there's research papers that can say it far better than i and more formally than i but we know exercise does have correlation to to successful well-being yeah yeah that absolutely makes sense and then so you mentioned avidog is do you do avidog puppy raising do you do puppy culture do you kind of mix and match i mix and match yeah Yeah. so so i play little bits of both um i think both programs are really great foundations and have lots of really great parts in them um and i mix and match to be what's going to be appropriate for for my dogs and my program and also where those puppies are going um so again you know some of my litters that are very detection focused that I know are going to be my agency dogs going to agencies that require a more resilient and more handler resilient dog. Um, I may not do some of the manding exercises or I may let them be a little bit punkier and, and let them think they're 
pretty cocky little puppies uh, from that young age. Um, and, and it's hard to say if those things actually make a difference in the long term or not. We don't know. In my head, it makes me feel like I'm at least doing something to try to encourage the right things. So um, I continue to do it. But I think those programs both outline a really great plan for appropriately exposing and socializing puppies to new stimuli, which is mm-hmm. very important at that young age. Um, so letting them see all types of new things in an appropriate time um, and in a developmentally appropriate time. So there are times during their development where we could probably expose them to tons of things. It's not going to make a difference. It's not sticking at that age. They're not cognizant of it. It's not helping. Mm-hmm. But there are other things we could do at that age so that may be helpful in the future. Um you know, early sense stimulation is one of those that I think is coming out a little bit more and more. And we hear more people talking about, I've done it for quite a few litters. Does it make a difference? I don't know. Um, but it's a sound theory. It sounds, it makes sense, you know, on paper. Um, and it's one of those things where all of these early exposure things, it's definitely not hurting. So even if it's not helping maybe as a two-year-old dog, maybe it's not helping them operationally, but for sure it's not hurting anything. And if anything, it's only maybe setting up some neural pathways that otherwise wouldn't be explored. Um, So I think all those things are good things to do. I think they're essential things to need to do. Um, I've pulled in a lot of different puppies from a lot of different environments. And um, actually Arden that I think you'll be talking to in a a podcast or you may have talked to already um, was part of a a very small scale puppy raising project with me where we pulled in two dogs, um, completely different litters, similar ish pedigrees, um, same birth date, different very different litter raising style. So one was a litter raised in the house, um, raised with a lot of early neuro things and a lot of socialization. One was a litter raised in the kennel. Um, really those puppies never really got in the house. They got all their needs met. Um, but there wasn't anything extra done with those puppies. And as they grew up, it was interesting to watch. Um, they're still young and it's a sample size of two. So it's not enough data to actually look at anything in a, a broad sense. Um, But that one that didn't have exposure to things, he looked real nice as a puppy, he hit his fear phases so much harder than the one who had had um, all the early Mm -hmm. exposure. And again, not enough data to conclude anything, but it was very interesting to see that that dog looked you know, the same and solid at eight weeks, ended up looking the same at 12 months. but every, you know, developmental fear period that they hit, um, the the one puppy who had had early socialization kind of rolled through them a little easier. You could see him look weird at things for a day or two, and then he was fine. The one who was raised without all that early stuff, um, he hit each fear phase hard. It would be like a solid yeah. two weeks of like, oh my God, the world is melting. And then he popped out of it and was fine. But it was definitely a very drastic look between the two. Um, so that was interesting to me and kind of at least in that super small sample size supported my idea that like it doesn't hurt. And maybe these things that we're doing are helping create a more resilient dog. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And again, like I think the tricky thing and where, where I start getting curious now is like, I've seen firsthand in the shelter world, so many dogs come through that are dramatically under socialized, even at, you know, right. like four months old or something like this is, this happens not infrequently where, you know, someone's got a litter at home, whether it's an oops litter or not, they don't sell all the puppies. And then 
and they didn't really do anything with him. They kind of just lived in the laundry room or whatever. And then at four, five, six, eight months old, they bring them to the shelter because, you know, again, it was an oops litter or they just didn't place them all or something. And a lot of times those dogs had really, really crippling anxieties and fears and phobias because they'd been so under socialized. And what I'm curious about now would be really trying to do, and this would be a much more ethical study to do anyway, because I don't think ethically we should do something like that intentionally to half of a litter of puppies. Um, but it would be really interesting to look at like some of these formalized programs and maybe someone's done this and I just haven't, haven't come across it yet. Um, but the difference between kind of like a medium adequate socialization home, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. what we would consider like basic best practices versus these real like silver spoon programs. Right. um, And really kind of seeing, yeah, like are all of these barrier challenges, worth it <laughs> right. are know? they doing something are they creating resilience and the persistence yeah that especially I want because them to? most people most people either do you know you know the entirety of puppy culture or have a dog mm-hmm. or they're kind of taking bits and pieces randomly and i don't know if anyone has ever taken like let's test each of these different components because i don't think we know like if puppy culture actually does produce better dogs temperamentally as adults or makes teenagerhood that much easier or whatever, which both I think are absolutely worthwhile as outcomes. Right. Absolutely. You know, again, is it the manding? Is it the, is it the ENS? Is it the, the barrier challenges? Right. You know, which what part, part of is that making, matters? Yeah. What part's making the difference? Absolutely. And then which, I think looking you're long- exhausted breeder, which parts do you cut out? Right. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think looking longitudinally too, it, you know, okay. So what is helping through? Yeah. Is it just helping with a, a punky teenager? You know, did that program just make that easier? Which as you said, is totally worth it. Did it make potty training easier? Which that in itself is worth oh it. Or crate training yeah. or something like that for sure. Um, or, is it actually creating operationally more successful dogs at three, four, five, you know, at the, where they're working out in the field. I, and I don't think that research has been done, at least as far as I know, it might be in progress. That would be exciting. Um, but you know, are those things actually creating long-term effects that, that can help us out? And at least to me, it's one of those where I feel like they're useful. I've, will continue to do them because I feel like they don't hurt. Um, but I can't really say when people say, Oh, does that make all the difference in the world? I don't know. I I don't. I mean, and again, of course it's hard to tell because we're trying to do everything right. So it's not like we're doing an experiment where we're intentionally taking genetics that we don't love and then putting the puppies through puppy culture to see if that can fix it. Quote unquote. Right. Nor are we taking like the best genetics in the world where you're like, Oh my God, this is my dream pairing. We imported semen from a dog from Australia. Like, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Like, <laughs> and I'm not doing the- anything with them. Yeah. And right. Then, yeah. Like-, like, cause it would be, I mean, that would be a fascinating experiment to run, but like, it would know. be, it would be, I, but I no one's going to really... waste that. Pre- yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I don't know if yeah. it's ethical or practical. Right, exactly. No, I think it's a, a fa- it's intriguing that way for sure. And I mean, look at, there are some successful dogs that come from 
really weird backgrounds where they've had very little. And I think there's something to be said for those dogs that could be that resilient to their environment. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the genes I want. (laughs) Yes. yes, That you can Uh, come from that and be able to be that successful. I'm like, all right, buddy, like more power to um, you. So my dog, Barley, um, I have been on this like mad quest to try to reconstruct his pedigree using Embark. Because I, I, I got him from a shelter. I did manage to track down his owner because I worked at the shelter. So I was able to do that. Um, his owner has no idea where he got him. He just got him as like a seven week old puppy, bought him in a Walmart parking lot oh as far as I can tell. Um, and now that I've finally tracked down enough of his other relatives, several of them were puppies, were pet store puppies from pet- Petland. Oh my God. And I'm like, oh my God, my dream dog might be like a Petland puppy mill dog. Right? He might be a little Amish dog. He could yeah. be a little. <laughs> I mean, maybe not Amish because they're from like Western Texas. Um, okay, right. That's more but... where I am in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. where I'm from exactly. Wisconsin. So, yeah, yeah same thing. Yep. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And, and I don't know because I've also found there are other dogs that are closely related to him that come from great breeders that do sport huh. So, like, I don't know. Right, but he's right. related to both. Yeah, um, isn't that crazy? And that's, that's a yeah. Very and like, I mean, sp- like he's neutered, so it's kind of a moot point. Although the main reason I've been kind of obsessed over this is like my my crackpot dream would be to manage to find his like grand niece to breed yes. to Niffler, and then and then have a relative of both. And I right. I don't know if it's going to be possible because so few of his relatives have had pedigrees because I think again they're just coming from this not great place. Mm-hmm. But so many of them, I mean, again, having talked to their owners, they are the sorts of dogs I would want. It's, it's just go. it's just fascinating. There's, there's like, something I, you know. It's just there's something really huge weird... to be said about that. Yeah, and I think we have to look yeah. too, right? Like we were talking, the most successful dogs in the sport world all aren't always our most successful detection placements or the dog we would like, but we've got to think. So I know what I like in a, in a field trial line dog. Um, and that dog is definitely not a successful trial dog, but the thing is, where do they go? Cause no one's paying to get the health clearances on this flunky washout dog. That's not going to make anything. So usually mm-hmm. it goes to go with some good old boy who can handle that level of drive because they will be able to just manage it through either e-collar pressure or they don't care if the dog's being a giant jerk. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so there's that. And they're just going to use him as a meat dog all the time. They're going to go use him to find as many pheasants as they can in the field or to be able to go through, you know, icy water and go able to do all these deep retrieves that require a dog with a ton of grit. That's what those dogs are going to be used for. So they may be working in a capacity that I really like, but one, where am I finding them? Because they're not being made public. Those are not the dogs being advertised as stud. Those are not the dogs being put out there. Um, and two, then I have plenty of dogs that I've paid to put the health clearances on because I love the dog, yet no one else is going to want to breed to it. I've had stud owners I've approached and they're like, this is the opposite of what field trial people would like. I'm like, but I love it. They're like, but mm-hmm. I can't dump a grand into this dog to get its clearances because... No one else is ever going to use it. No one wants that type of thing. Um, and so in that case, I have paid to put clearances on dogs and have ended up with some really cool things that I like from it. So it's been worthwhile. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think we do have to look at, like you said, those dogs that you're finding from Barley's pedigree are the kind of dog you would like. Um 
but is the kind of dog you or I like, is that going to be mainstream enough that other people are liking it too? And it's getting bred too often enough right. to, to continue that line on. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> Even if I'm liking a lot of the dogs from, you know, a pet land line, I'm not sure about, you know, I just won't have that longitudinal health testing. Exactly. You, you know, even if I did track down his grandniece and even if she had OFA excellent hips by some miracle, and even if, you know, I, I wouldn't have, right. you, know, you and I were talking about epilepsy databases, like there's a very good chance those dogs wouldn't be in an epilepsy database, you know, blah, 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 Absolutely. blah, blah. So, um, you know, it's probably a, a long lost dream anyway, but you know, it's, it's an like, interesting point though. And I think, but also as you go through and you're isolating those traits that you really like from barley and looking at that, you may find more, um, dogs that maybe don't have that exact pedigree, but are consistent exactly. in those traits and, and find yeah. something you like there. So, and the nice thing is, you know, like, I mean, I think you and I are both fortunate of being so in love with these breeds that, are a ubiquitous and mm -hmm. B there are still a lot of people doing a lot of work with them. Right. I, I feel a lot for people who like we were, I was just talking to um, Lindsay of uh, new England, us uh, science dogs of new England. Yeah. And um, one of the dogs she works with is a, uh, a wiener dog at Ashland. There you um, go. And he's an amazing tracking dog for her, but you know, it sounds like she's probably had to get, I mean, and I, I'm speaking on my butt here a little bit um, because adaptions are so far from my area of expertise. Um, but finding the good genetics in the U.S. for working Dachshunds is probably mm -hmm. a lot harder than it is for you and I to find that diversity or those nice working dogs within Absolutely. labs and border collies. Or, you know, another example, I was just talking to a friend who um, she really wants a Papillon um, for agility. Okay. And Papillons are not unusual in agility. Right. But there's a lot of Papillon breeders that are mostly looking for confirmation and color and mm -hmm. pet dogs. And she, and, and like that proportion is way out of whack. And there's just fewer Papillons than there are labs, period. Right. Right. And, and I think that's a, like when you bring up too that, that difference between confirmation and, and working ability. So when I'm looking at my end goal in mind for my breeding program, I am looking at working ability. Now, working ability does encompass confirmation. I need a very confirmationally sound yeah. dog an athletic dog to be able to do the job that I need them to do. So I will get flack occasionally from people who are like, well, you don't breed labs that look like labs. And I promise I'm not breeding them to look totally like something ridiculous, but I do have a lighter bone dog. However, I take a huge amount of stock and structural evaluation to be able to say, is this dog going to be able to hold up to the rigors of the job? Um, and I want a dog who's still well angulated in the front and rear properly without any extremes and has a nice short supple top line and, and all those things that mm -hmm. need to happen for an athletic structurally sound dog. But if we look at my dogs compared to the labs in a confirmation ring, um, of besides the difference totally different. of 60 pounds, you know, we're looking at a super different crate. They're not going to look alike at that oh point. My gosh. It's I, I have so many people who don't believe me. Um, when I say that he's a purebred border collie, cause he's, he's short haired and merled. I've had one dude, um, totally mansplain at me. And he was like, that is a husky Australian shepherd cross. And I was like, sir, it is not, <laughs> it would be so much hairier if it was, <laughs> oh. <laughs> trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, I mean, uh, labs and border collies are another good example of like, oh my god, the differences between the confirmation and the working ring. I mean, 
show line border collies don't do not look anything like working border collies and honestly the working border collies don't mu look much like the sporting border collies either like right. it, it, it's bizarre um well and i you know i, I was just uh, you know as you were talking i pulled up your um your your dogs again <laughs> and i'm looking at them and i grew up in northern wisconsin big hunting yep. community and i'm Absolutely. like these to me look like what i think of as labs Right. Thank you. Because I'm used to being around working, Absolutely. hunting labs. Um, you know, that's like we grew up with. Um, I had a dog out of, um, oh gosh, I know her dad's name was like Rowdy Blue or something. I can't remember the kennel name, but you know, okay, she was out yep. of Champion Hunting Lines. Right. Um, and that's and what she, they look like. She looked, uh, honestly, shape wise, she looks a ton like, um, I don't know, his uh, taboo, actually. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, um, she was just a chocolate. But like, when she was in her prime, that's the shape she had. Right, right. And that's, um, and I think there's something where, you know, the two communities, we need to realize that's a thing and, and not bash each other. So I don't bash the show people at all. Like, no, of course. that's, that's what works for them. That's the confirmation line that comes from them. And I get because I breed labs, I have a ton of like pet inquiries all the time of like, I want a lab. And I'm like, you don't want this kind of lab at all. Um, yes, please no. But you want that kind of lab. And there's some awesome show breeders that I refer to frequently because they are breeding the type of lab that your general person needs. And there is a need for that. Um, right. So I think we all have our place. You know, most people do not, I would not want to have one of my dogs because it's not going to be fair to the dog and it's definitely not going to be fair to the family. Um, but, you know, in the same sense, if we're trying to take one of those really heavy confirmation bred dogs and ask it to work with the the stamina and intensity that we're looking for our working line dogs to work with. That's not fair either. That's not, of course, that's not yeah. something they're genetically designed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that brings us to what does need to be our last question. Cause I've now taken up more than twice as much oh, no. time as I told I said I would. <laughs> uh, we could do this literally all day, but we shouldn't. Um, oh yes. It's placing puppies, you know, so like going back to Maya, the lab I grew up with, um, she was one of, they had a, they had an, an absurd litter. I think it was 14 puppies. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. I know. And, you know, she was the one that when we went to look at the litter and pick her up, um, she crawled into our lap and fell asleep while the right. other puppies were like hanging off of my pigtails. And, you know, the, <laughs> the breeder was looking at the one hanging off my pigtails and he was like, yeah, that's the one I'm keeping back for, <laughs> for hunting. Right. <laughs> That's the one I want. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she turned out to be like, God, I wish I could have that dog again, knowing what I know now. She died um, in 20, 2019, probably. She was 15 years old. Oh, that's awesome. They're good. Incredible. Good life. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. An incredible, incredible dog. But like, I, I, cause I think she could do the work that I'm doing. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, she was probably a little bit much dog for us. Um, yeah. So, and you think, know, even, even with the placement that we were looking at um, being reasonable, um, mm -hmm. she was a lot. So anyway, how do you, how do you place your yeah. dogs? How do you, especially knowing, you know, what we've been talking about, about all these things being so non-predictive, non things changing when they're from one to three years old, even. Absolutely. So what I'm going to look at first is, are the genetics of the parents going to fit what my puppy placements would like? So when I'm looking at a litter for puppy placements, I typically have, I have, 
two kind of lines that I'm playing with primarily. So one is my line that I use mostly for my agency placements um, and is a little bit more of my grittier, um, tends to produce a more independently working, a little bit more of a screw you type dog that work, um, that, that just want to do their job, will do their job until they die. Um, and please just let them be alone and do it. Um, and those tend to work really well for my agency placements. They're strong dogs. They think very highly of themselves, but not always great for my sport placements. So then I have another line that I tend to look at a little bit more for sport, nose work, and even some SAR homes, depending on where SAR falls on the spectrum of how, um, how intense they are within SAR and what they're looking for in a SAR prospect. Dogs that are going to be working a little bit more as a teammate instead of an independent contractor. Um, dogs that will be willing to take feedback from their handlers a little bit more easily. Um, and that do tend to have a little bit better of an off switch too, and can just totally turn it off and chill. Mm -hmm. So, so I found the most luck. I know I'm not going to produce that with my dogs that are super gritty. Um, so I just kind of have two separate, somewhat related, but, but have become fairly separate lines that I play with for that. Um, and so when I'm placing a litter, what I'm looking at, am I trying to get a sport prospect out of this super gritty detection litter? Because it might look okay at eight weeks and I can convince myself that it's going to be fine. But if that person comes and they wouldn't want to work the dad and they wouldn't want to work the mom, then there's a good chance that puppy, even if it looks like it's a good fit at eight weeks, isn't actually going to work out great for them. Um, so looking at, yeah, is, is mom and dad really what they're looking at for a working dog themselves. If that fits, then within the litter, I do tend to keep a broad range of placements. So in my like sport and SAR litters, I'll have a couple SAR homes, a couple high level sport homes, a couple of like recreational sport homes, and maybe an active hiking home or something like that in the, in the mix too. Um, and then I do try to match up in place appropriately. So when I'm looking at litters for placements, I look at uh, trends more so than I'm looking at an individual puppy testing day. So I use a, like a stoplight system. So from the time they're about five weeks old, um, I expose them to new, new stimuli every day. And I'm recording kind of with like a green, yellow, red, who is, you know, green to go all about it into it, who is yellow that day kind of so, so, and who is red does not want to interact with it, does not want any part of it or is fearful mm -hmm. of it, whatever. Um, and so then I'm looking at those, these sheets from daily and, and whatever over a period of like three weeks and seeing, okay, are there ones that consistently are always green puppies? Those puppies might be my better star prospects are there puppies that are always my red puppies then maybe i don't want to put that puppy into work he doesn't seem like he really handles novel things well he consistently doesn't handle novel things well so i think he probably needs to go to that placement better i do um tend to have the final say well i do have the final say on where my puppies go with an experienced um handler at home i will let them will communicate and have that discussion together so i'll tell them what i'm seeing um they can provide any input they have we can do any testing that they want to do and then look at all those pieces of collective whole um to kind of make those decisions with a newer handler typically or someone who's not as experienced in picking puppies or someone who is just more comfortable with me picking their puppy which is really what i prefer um i'm gonna you know kind of work through i will give them my reasoning for my decisions and, and 
include them in the process all throughout. Um, but we'll be talking about why those placements happen. I'm not going to keep a full list of SAR homes because I know not every puppy in that litter is going to be destined for or right. have the nerve strength for SAR. So I like to keep a diverse list so that I have options to fit the puppy into whatever home I feel they'll fit into best. Um, and so that if it's a puppy that's showing it really doesn't want to work here, we can put you into so-and-so's home or you can hike and mountain bike and do all those kind of fun things to meet your physical mm-hmm. needs. Um, but you don't need to have the pressure of actually doing a job. So I do tend to keep a diverse list. Um, and we do have to take that out with a grain of salt, because like I said, you know, as we're moving through this domestic breeding consortium with John Hopkins, which has forced us to keep litters, um, not forced, but but that's their ask for data. Um, traditionally, I have puppies in those litters that I would have I would have placed out at eight weeks or 12 weeks because I really feel they weren't candidates. And some of those are seriously proving me wrong. So I am eating my own words on some of it and knowing that, you know, what I'm seeing at eight weeks is not always true. Um, But I'm hoping through looking at trends, we can help make the most educated decisions possible. Um, I think one day puppy tests can tell us some things, but also, you know, puppies are so fickle in that, you know, someone ate double their portion for lunch that day or something. And we go to test mm-hmm. them and they just look like a sleepy slug on the side. And normally that's the mm-hmm. little rock star of the litter. Like they don't tell us everything looking at them in just that short time. Um, yeah. So that's my basic thing, keeping a diverse list and then looking through longer periods of looking at trends to see uh, hopefully what will fit best where. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. And that sounds like what most of the breeders that I've talked to do and seems like the most reasonable way to go, you know, again, talking, and I've talked about this before on the show with Niffler's litter. One of the things that the breeder did was she, um, she gave the puppies numbers um, as well as Mm -hmm. names and didn't tell us which number correlated to which puppy, Um, which I actually asked her to do because I knew, so it was a really colorful litter. There was a blue merle, a red merle, a slate merle, two black and whites, a black and white tri, and a sable. Oof. Those um, are pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I asked her, because I was like, I know I'm biased towards wanting a merle. Mm-hmm. I know that about myself. I know I'm also biased towards wanting a rough-coated um, pup. Because um, I prefer those looks. And um, so I asked her whenever she was doing her, she did kind of like weekly observation updates in our Facebook group. She numbered the puppies. Um, and told us, you know, she gave them like a couple adjectives and some observations and whatnot, but again, didn't tell us. So I was able to say like, I'm pretty sure it was like four and seven that I was like, based on all the writing that I'm seeing, these are the ones I'm liking. Um, and it just so happened that I can't remember which one. I think Niffler was four. Um, it turned there out to be go. Niffler, who was the color I wanted. Um, he wasn't the coat type I wanted, but actually only one of the seven puppies ended up being rough coated. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of weird. Um, but you know, say lovey. Um, (laughs) I I liked that. That setup was really helpful for me again, you know, knowing that I was biased towards wanting to convince myself that specific puppies within that litter were going to be the right fit for me because of the look. Um, and knowing that, you know, I like, I just know that about myself. I know that's a weakness and I think most of us probably have that weakness. Um, and so both as breeders and as buyers, like doing what we can to remove that. It's very important. And I think too, cause we're in an age where so many of our puppy people, at least for me, are not 
local enough to visit the litter all the time. Like many of them, I have a seven week old litter right now. They're going across the country. Like they're, they're all over the place. Um, so those people aren't able to come in every week and really get to know the puppies and see them. They're, they're paying attention to either the videos that I have that I'm posting or things like that. And I do have to be careful because I get, uh, for example, this upcoming letter, um, the star home. And she really liked the, puppy that always looks very engaging in videos and is the one right up with me and biting the camera and doing things like that. And she's like, that puppy looks awesome, like a rock star. And so when we were going through placement decisions and telling her who I justify, you know, who I think would be the best fit for her, um, it's the puppy that isn't in videos as much because he's usually typically off independently exploring and he's a super uh, cool dude, yeah. but he doesn't show well in videos because he's off doing his own thing. Like, yeah, he's, which he's is in exactly his own little what world. you want in SAR. Right. You know, the dog who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm off. I'm, yeah, 300 acres, no problem, mom. Exactly, exactly. But on video, that doesn't look cool or mm-hmm. fun or something because he's just off in the background like taking off across the yard heading for the wood line um yeah. so yep. there's <laughs> things like that that you know it can be hard to to we look at videos and, and try to pick and, and that can be tricky and um you know i've it, it's hard i've had other people pick puppies for me from litters um and i've tried to be really good about just letting go and at the end of the day sometimes you know, my typical thing, if I'm going to a field trial person and saying, here's, you know, what I'm looking for in a puppy. And typically it's, you know, I want a puppy who's not really a team. I'm not looking particularly for a team player. I'm looking for a dog to be an independent contractor. I, that's what I prefer in a dog. Um, I want all that intensity. I, I want that, you know, confidence. Um, oftentimes, you know, I'm looking for the, the, kind of bullyish puppy of the litter. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times I'm saying, you know, the one that you want to send off first, I'm like, that's probably the puppy that I'm happy to take. Like, yeah, that's typically, um, because it's hard looking at puppy testing and things, even me watching videos of other people puppy testing, I have a hard time with it. And like, ugh. but you don't see the subtle nuances of how that puppy is actually looking or, or just the vibe that they're giving off. Cause those things we can't put into data numbers or metrics, but they're still there and they mean something. So, um, mm-hmm. so it, it can be hard, you know, having a puppy picked for you. And I get that. I feel for people cause I hate it's stressful. To pick up. It's stressful, yeah. but you know what? A lot of times it ends up, you got to trust that that breeder, they're the ones seeing those puppies every day. They're the ones with those puppies mm-hmm. every day. And at the end of the day too, a good breeder is putting that puppy with you because they want the best placement for that puppy. Um, they're not, you know, I think sometimes we get people who think like, oh, well, maybe I didn't have first pick at least with me keeping a diverse litter. Like I don't do pick orders. I try to keep a diverse enough list that for puppy buyer a, their pick puppy is going to be a very different puppy than puppy buyer B's. Pick puppy right. It's going more to matchmaking be. and less mm-hmm. like there's not a ranking of like, one through six best puppy. Right, right, exactly. It's more of, yeah, this puppy that's going to go to the SAR home is definitely not the puppy I want to put in the competitive agility home. It, it, mm-hmm. They just don't, the two things aren't one and the same. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, I, I could talk to you for another couple yeah. hours, I'm sure, but I really do <laughs> need to let you go. It is lunchtime for me. Um, 
Yes. It so is thank you so much. Here. Um, if anyone has forgotten from the last episode, can you remind people where they can find you online? Yeah. So uh, for all the social stuff, we are Catalyst with a K. So Catalyst Kennels on Facebook, Catalyst Canine on Instagram. Um, email is always the easiest way to reach me personally. It is Catalyst, the letter K, the number nine at gmail.com. Um, always happy to talk working dogs, working labs in particular. Love that. So. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much, Kate. And as always, listeners, you can find us online at canineconservationists.org. You should join our Patreon if you are hoping to get into the field of conservation detection dogs, whether you've got a brand new puppy or um, an experienced dog or anywhere in between. We've got all sorts of cool offerings over there um, to help everyone learn together. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.